Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire, one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our... Shit, what actually? Is this the seventh episode? <laughs> this would be the eighth, counting Eighth the episode, God damn it! <laughs> Eventually it's going to be like, welcome to our 65th episode. Right, exactly. And it'll be like, oh, is that 65th or 64th? So, welcome <laughs> to our eighth episode of the Nanacast, entitled Needlework, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Aria 1, our very first point of view chapter from the only, and this is actually something that's interesting that I didn't realize until I was actually looking at this, it's from our only point of view character who has a point of view chapter in every published book in A Song of Ice and Fire. And, that, and she also has a sample chapter, too, in The Winds of Winter. So, she has a chapter in every single book so far. Um, spoiler warning, uh, as we say every week, all, it'll be all for all published books. So that is, we will be talking about all five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, the histories, interviews with George R. R. Martin and the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show, anything and everything. Just as a quick programming note, um, unfortunately there's not going to be an episode next week and that's due to, uh, some travel that'll be going on between the, uh, the hosts. Um, but as recompense for us not having an episode next week, in the week after that, you'll be getting not one, but two episodes. You hear that? Two. So the first is going to be our take on A Game of Thrones Brand 2, which is a terrific, fantastic chapter that really blows the plot apart. And the second episode will be our sample patron episode that will be released to the general public. So in case you forgot, uh, just a little reminder, we're going to be releasing an episode um, that would be normally available to our Patreon-only subscribers, but it was coming out to the general public, and it'll be in, on this podcast feed. And the reason we're doing that is to kind of be like, hey, if you're interested in Patreon, this is kind of some of the stuff you'll be listening from us. And uh, in case you forgot from last week, the episode is going to be all about why A Dance with Dragons is a better book than A Storm of Swords. And we might even have a special, special guest. So if you are interested in checking out our Patreon before you listen to that episode, feel free. You can see us at patreon.com slash forward slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Yeah, I mean, as people have pointed out, this podcast is clearly revealing itself as just an excuse for us to talk about a dance with dragons. <laughs> I mean, we're four books away from actually talking about a dance with dragons. So that special episode should hopefully help us to get a little of that out of our system so we can actually focus more closely on the first book that we're reading. Well, I don't, I really, I mean, let's be real. I don't think it's going to really get it out of our system. I think it's going to be. <laughs> let's not make any promises we can't keep. That's that's probably an overly ambitious goal for the two of us, Jeff. That's fair. It, it, it that's is fair. It is a very ambitious goal, but, uh, you know, maybe we can do it. I, I kind of doubt it, though. I think we'll keep talking about a Dance with Dragons until we're actually into Dance with Dragons. Then it's going to be all Dance with Dragons all the time talk. 24-7 Dance with Dragons. Absolutely. Um, so... Anyways, just if you're interested, just check out the uh, the Patreon and uh, feel free to contribute if you like to. If not, no worry, no foul. We're happy to have you guys listening to us. We did want to give a quick shout out to one of our friends in the fandom, Stephen Atwell, who writes at raceforthearonthrone.wordpress.com and raceforthearonthrone.tumblr.com. Uh, he's been doing an incredible series of essays on A Song of Ice and Fire chapter by chapter for the last few years. It's like a third of the way through Storm of Swords right now as it stands. Yep. And, uh, but some fun news. He's uh, got the paperback edition of his essays on A Clash of Kings, also known as just Race for the Iron Throne Volume 2, Race for the Iron Throne Volume 1 being on A Game of Thrones. Those are now available on Amazon. This is a, a part one of his essays on Clash of Kings. 
Uh, so I highly recommend checking those out. And if you like his stuff, supporting his uh, Kickstarter and just reading his stuff in general. Uh, Stephen writes essays from a perspective of someone really interested in and well-versed in uh, history and politics and writes about uh, the chapters in the series from uh, someone who's really passionate about how economics has changed over time, how individuals function within larger social and political systems. And that mindset brings a lot, of, a lot out of the text. You can see him in Clash of Kings talking about everything from like the revanchist attitudes of the Ironborn in Theon's Clash of Kings chapters, all the interesting political stuff going on when Bran is running Winterfell with the Hornwood Inheritance Crisis, uh, how Tyrion functions as Hand versus how Ned functioned as Hand in the first book. All, all this great political and social material uh, in one convenient place. Yes. So we'll put the link in uh, on the page as usual, and you can check that out. But yeah, I highly recommend Stephen's stuff. Again, racefortheirontheron.wordpress.com, where he puts most of his essays, and then racefortheirontheron.tumblr.com, where he uh, asks, he answers Tumblr asks. So check out his stuff. I can't possibly recommend it highly enough. I totally agree. You know, it's it's and not not to overstate this, but I, I think that both you and I have been heavily influenced by by Stephen's writing. Uh, his chapter by chapters for the written essays, you know, we can't speak highly enough about them. Uh, and this this part, uh, volume two, has one of my favorite bits of analyses by by Stephen, and that is his take on the Battle of the Blackwater, which is terrific because he really kind of unpacks the complicated and uh, confusing at times narrative that Martin writes for A Clash of Kings, but you know, he does it in in a really Really, really good way of doing it. You know, Stephen has a PhD in history, which is excellent. He has a background in medieval studies, which is also extremely valuable as uh, in terms of analyzing the series. And yeah, I couldn't recommend this book and his websites more than than I could. Uh, I, could I couldn't recommend these his book and these websites enough for sure. Yeah, he's also got a background as a union organizer and is involved in lefty politics in a number of ways. So oh, that's why you that like him. <laughs> he bring, he brings that perspective to bear on the events of the world of Song of Ice and Fire, and I think in a really interesting fashion. And you can, he, you know, there's links on his page. He also like writes about the X Men and public policy and stuff sometimes too. So he's got a far, far ranging uh, range of interests. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that 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 perspective that he brings to the series, I think, is really what makes his stuff unique. So if all that sounds intriguing, check out his uh, Race for the Iron Throne Volume Two. On Amazon, his essays on the Clash of Kings. Absolutely. So, uh, normally at this time in the podcast, you guys know what happened. I'll, Emma and I will talk about some people that we want to thank. And there were a number of fantastic comments this week. But just to kind of shake things up so we don't get too stale in our in what we're presenting in our introduction, I thought maybe instead I would go back to something that we hadn't done in a few episodes. And I might ask one of those questions that I – Ask Emmett ever every so often. It's it's one of my favorite parts of the podcast. I don't care if it's if it's no one else's, because uh, I like to get Emmett's take on these things. And as a reminder, um, not to plug Patreon one more time, if you do become a ten dollar a month sworn sword patron, you will get the option of asking us the question that I will pose to Emmett, or Emmett will pose to me, or something like that. Um, you have the that option available to you, and you can you can ask us a question, ask us about a theory, our favorite movie, anything and everything. So. The question for this week, and it's a pretty topical one. Uh, unfortunately, it's not um, super uh, original, um, and I'm okay with that uh, because we are talking about Arya Stark and her first chapter. So, Emmett, what is your favorite Arya Stark chapter and why? 
Excellent and topical question, Jefflesworth. So it's a tough choice. Arya, as you mentioned, is in all published books in Song of Ice and Fire so far. Her story has a lot of distinct uh, phases to it, a lot of distinct sections. There's uh, King's Landing, there's uh, Riverlands on her own, there's the Riverlands with the Brother Without Banner, and then there's Bravos. I love a lot of chapters in every one of those sections. I really love her fourth chapter in Game of Thrones, the one with Sirio's Last Stand. That's just a real heart-in-your-throat-inspiring chapter that we'll get to and enjoy a lot in this first book. I love her chapters in Harrenhal and Clash of Kings, that kind of weird fairy tale atmosphere with the faceless man being her, you know, murder genie and her trying to navigate a place in that huge castle. And I love all her chapters in Bravos. I think they're really underrated and really beautifully written <laughs> and kind of push her identity struggle to the forefront. But if I had to pick one Arya Stark chapter above all others, it would be her sixth chapter in A Storm of Swords. That is the one set under the Hollow Hill with the trial of Sandor Clegane by the Brotherhood Without Banners and his duel with Beric Dondarrion. Now, I think one of the weaker parts of Arya's story is how much build-up it takes to get to that chapter. She spends a lot of time on the road with the Brotherhood, and that content is certainly interesting uh, in and of itself. Stephen Atwell's chapter-by-chapter -chapter essays have recently gotten to this point in Arya's storyline, and he makes a great case for get delving into the Brotherhood's relationship to the small folk of the Riverlands. But it really doesn't pay off until you get to that sixth chapter, and the payoff is amazing. The the Under the Hollow Hills is beautifully written, vivid location. You get a sense of how big the Brotherhood is and how they're all supporting each other. It's You're reintroduced to Beric, and he gives this big, great romantic monologue about how we set out as, as brave fools to bring justice to your brother Gregor Clegane, and now we've reformed ourselves and I've made knights of all these men and we're fighting for everyone we've lost. And it's this huge, big, inspiring speech. And then Sandor like snaps back, you know, with his his uh, hardcore, like cynical, world weary realism about how you know a knight's just a, a sword and you know, you're just killers just like me, and he compares them to the bloody mummers, and it's just this great this great dialectic, this great ethical yes. debate about what the war is and what it means. And, you know, Arya is kind of observes a lot of it, but she also gets involved, and no one, you know, Sandor points out that you're just heaping all the blame for all these deaths onto me. It reminds me of uh, a Battlestar Galactica when um, Leah Dama points out that we're just taking all the suffering and shame of what we've been through and trying to pile it all onto Gaius Baltar and throw him out an airlock, and yes. that just gets gets rid of it all. Uh, and that's what the Brotherhood's trying to do to Sandor, so Arya has to come in and say, no, I do know one person you killed. I know it was you. And she brings up her friend, her friend Micah, and then on that basis, this great epic fiery duel takes place, and Arya's watching with her heart in the throat, and Sandor's, like, freaking out because of the fire, and then he takes Beric down, and San Arya yells at him, and then Beric suddenly is back, and it's just this great like spooky exciting cinematic scene that just burns yourself into your memory and it brings Arya's kind of loss and anguish to the forefront and yeah just that is a chapter uh I can't can't possibly recommend highly enough to someone who hasn't read it in a while or hasn't read Storm of Swords uh that that chapter is a knockout and I've reread it many a time it's a great chapter, and um, there's a great art artist by the name of Michael Kamarik, and I'm, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name, but he has that great um, artwork that he has of Beric and Sander fighting, where you have the uh, the fire from Beric's sword illuminating both him and Beric's uh, excuse me and, and Sandor's burned face, and it's it's terrific, and I, and I do love that chapter uh, immensely, and I do agree that. A number of her chapters that build up to that is just way too many chapters. But like, we can talk about that in our Dance with Dragons versus Storm of Swords episode for for sure. Because that is definitely one of my criticisms about A Storm of Swords is how many Arya chapters 
it, it takes to get to that point. Um, I had a hard time actually thinking about what was my favorite Arya chapter because there's one chapter that is, I'll just read it because it's my favorite opening lines from any chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's uh, Dance with Dragons, The Blind Girl. I think it's just beautiful the way that Martin writes this. He starts this, it by saying, and remember at this point, Arya has been blind and she is still serving as, as a faceless man apprentice, I guess, or accolade, not accolade. She's not quite there yet. Um, but the line is... Intern. Her we'll night- say intern. Unpaid internship. In, in, unpaid internship. She gets room and board. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she, gets she, gets, she gets exposure and experience, Jeff. These things count for more than money. I guess, yeah, right. Exactly. It's, <laughs> we can't pay you with money. We can pay you with exposure. I hate the future. But anyway, what's, yeah. The, what's, yeah, what's the opening line there? The line is, Her nights were lit by distant stars and the shimmer of moonlight on snow. But every dawn, she woke to darkness. And I love that line. It makes, it makes my, my skin tingle thinking about it because uh, what she's what George is communicating here is about Arya um, warging as Nymeria back in Westeros because it's lit by distant stars and the shimmer moonlight on snow. It is snowing in the Riverlands during this chapter, if you remember from Jamie's final chapter in A Feast for Crows. And Nymeria and her wolf pack are still there doing things in the Riverlands. Um, but then she wakes up to darkness because she's been blind by the faceless man. I love that opening line. It's it's one. It's my favorite in, in all the Song of Ice and Fire. But I actually, my favorite chapter, the one I, I think about probably the most, I think that's probably what became the um, the way that I, I determined which was my favorite was um, the Mercy chapter from The Winds of Winter. Uh, that chapter is a Gosh, I don't. How would, I, how would you even describe it? It's it, it's such a it's a weird chapter. So f- first, take it for that. So this chapter, the background of the chapter is that Martin wrote it first back in like two thousand one. So right after he finishes the Storm of Swords and it publishes, he writes this Aria chapter, and it's set. It was originally written with the five year gap in mind, and there's all sorts of these kind of weird five year gap leftover lines and materials, and how Arya's a bit more mature than the 12 year old that we left off with in a dance with dragons. Um, maybe that stuff will be written, rewritten or written out, but who knows? It's, it's a disturbing chapter in a lot of ways. Arya gets her first kiss from Raph the sweetling, which is a uh, kind of very disturbing line, but it's not very sweet at all. No, no, it's, 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 it makes your skin crawl, but at the same time, it, it's a really well-written chapter. Um, it really picks up the pace in Arya's um, arc there. So if you remember from the from the Dance of Dragons epilogue, uh, Kevin Lannister sends out Harris Swift and some of the mountain men from um, that have been up in Harrenhal. He sends them over to Bravos to see if they can secure a new loan from the Iron Bank. So they do arrive and they run into Arya Stark at the theater, who is in the guise of Mercy. And Mercy is a character in a semi sort of maybe uh, play on what's happened in the first book in the Game of Thrones and the second book as well, where you have the Ned Stark archetype, you have Tyrion Laster there, you have basically the propaganda version of a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings where Tyrion's this monster who's just killing left and right and you have, you know, and raping his sister and you have Ned Stark who's a, a traitor, a, a real traitor and a rebel and all these things. But uh, but Arya spots the, these folks. She sees Wrath the Sweeting, who is someone on her list of names, and she lures him away. Um, again, disturbing that she she seduces this guy and brings him back to her place, and then she kills him, and then she goes off singing "Mercy, Mercy, Mercy," and it's like this really creepy way that George writes it. That I, that's terrific. But yeah, that was, it, that's probably my favorite Arya chapter. Um, Arya is not my favorite point of view character as it stands. Um, I, I do like her chapters, a lot of her chapters. I think there's, unfortunately, 
a lot of fluff, especially in their clash and and storm chapters. But but yeah, it's it's interesting. Here in a Game of Thrones, though, she only has five chapters, and that's uh and and here we actually get the uh, her very first chapter in in a Game of Thrones. So a little plot summary before Emmett talks and gets into the depth that we so like that I so like. Um, so in this chapter, uh, Arya Stark hates sewing. Her stitches come out crooked, and they always stand in contrast to her sister Sansa, whose sewing is typically regarded as perfect. But here, Arya is forced to sew, to take up a traditional gender role in Winterfell. Along with her sister, Jane Poole, Beth Cassell, and Princess Marcella Baratheon, the girls sew under the watchful eye of Septa Mordain, Arya's foil for this chapter and for all the rest of her chapters really to come. After Septa Mordain forces Arya to hand over her work and gives Arya tongue lashing for her poor work, her poor sewing work that is, Arya makes an exit and races away from Sansa and her, stu- from Sansa and her stupid sewing. Waiting for her downstairs is her direwolf, who she's named Nymeria, after the famous after the famous Rhoynish queen who sailed to Westeros many years before. Arya then races up to a covered bridge between the armory and the Great Keep to watch the boys practice their sword fighting. There, she and Nymeria stumble across Jon Snow and his direwolf ghost, and they are watching what's going on below them in the courtyard. Jon musses her hair, calls her little sister, and they watch as Bran defeats Tommen in mock battle. And then they watch as Sir Roger Cassell issues a challenge to Joffrey and Rob to fight again. Joffrey refuses unless the fight is done with live steel, which Roderick forbids. Rob begs. Cassell refuses. Joffrey arrogantly insults Rob, and Rob grows angry and starts cursing in the courtyard. The party in the castle courtyard breaks up. John and Ghost depart. Arya and Nymeria reluctantly head back to her room, knowing that Mordain will likely be waiting for her to dole out punishment. But instead, it's Septa Mordain and her mother, Catelyn Stark. And that bum, is bum, bum. <laughs> right. And that is a very simple summary of Arya's first chapter in Game of Thrones. Well, as Jeff said, Arya is probably not either one of our favorite point of view characters. I love her a lot. I think she's a really well written character. I think Martin doesn't always do a great job with the kind of structure and momentum and general narrative thrust of her place within the story. And part of that, I think, goes hand in hand with what her role in the story is. She's called Arya Underfoot, and that's pretty much her job. Her job is to be you know, on the ground looking up, whether quite literally because she's a tiny little girl always looking up the adults running her life, or because she's her story positions her among the small folk, whether you're talking about wandering around the Riverlands with, you know, Lamy and Hot Pie, or uh, whether you're talking about her time in Bravos when she's always greeting mummers and beggars and all the various peoples of that quote-unquote crooked city. You know, Arya's Arya's on the ground, and I think that is a vital and admirable role for her to play in the narrative, but I think it does also produce an, an inherent sense of kind of stasis and even tediousness to her chapters at yes. certain times, where yes, not much is definitely. happening, she's not really in control. Uh, all, you know, it's all, again, it's all deliberate, it all, it, it's all purposeful, but I find myself kind of waiting, I, I always find myself waiting for things to kick in gear. Especially in the first three books, it, it, it takes a little while for Arya's story to get going. She usually spends a lot of time in the first few chapters in game and Clash and Storm kind of wandering around at the mercy of the other characters. Mercy, quote unquote. <laughs> at the mercy of the other characters around her. So it's it's not it's not hugely interesting. And that you, that does come up in this chapter. This is probably my least favorite of the early suite of Winterfell chapters. Mm-hmm. It feels strongly to me like it's a buffer and kind of breathing room for the audience in between the heavy hitters of Catelyn 2 and Bran 2, but it is a great intro to Arya as a character, and Arya as a headspace, Arya as a person we 
get to know and grow sympathetic with and, and you know, want to pull her back from the abyss, it establishes that very well. It establishes her role as an unhappy outsider, uh, how she's not happy within the within either spaces of needlework, so to speak. The, the right. female space, the prescribed female space of, of sewing and the social circle that goes with that. She's not comfortable there. And then she sees the other needlework of the swords clashing in the courtyard, and she feels more at home with that, but she's ultimately not welcome there. Right. And we see how that, that outsider in-between role has kind of led her to become extremely close with John. The two of them are closer than, than they are to anybody else within the walls of Winterfell, in large part because they have that in common. And this chapter also does, like a lot of these early Winterfell chapters, it has a lot of firsts. It has a lot of things it's setting up for later. This is the first time you really get a sense of the Stark sisters. Uh, it's the, Like I said, it's the first, quote-unquote, female space in the series where we see women on their own uh, without men dominating the scene and get a sense of how they interact with each other and what their role in this patriarchal world is. It's a, a kind of a taste of what we get later with the Terrell Court and Key's Landing. Yep. This is the first chapter in which we really get a sense of who Joffrey is. I mean, we got him, like, looking around Winterfell's Great Hall being disdained and bored in John 1. Uh, but Martin gradually ramps up the reveal of what Joffrey is. In this chapter, he's he's very obnoxious to Rob. He's rude. He's arrogant. He's entitled. But he still comes off as... He's not at this point... If you just freeze the story here, he comes off much better than Viserys. Because we immediately are given... Right. Danny's first chapter, enough information to know that Viserys is a loony and a sadist. But Joffrey, at this point, we don't know how bad things have gotten with him until we get to Sansa 1 and we see him torment poor Micah. Uh, and then, like, you know, hiss furiously at Sansa when she tries to comfort him and then lies about the whole thing. That's when we really first get a sense of what kind of person Joffrey is. But it that's seeded in here. And this is the first time that Sandra Clegane speaks. Of course, we see that from the POV of the Stark sister, of course. Because yep. the story will revolve around the Stark sisters in large part for the rest of the series so far. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's like you said, Arya only has five chapters in the Game of Thrones, which I had forgotten before I kind of went back and looked over the structure of the book as we started doing this podcast. And yeah, it's it's she doesn't really. Again, she's Arya underfoot in this in this first book. She's she's very interesting in terms of her emotional dynamics in terms of what she wants and how she's running up against things but she's not really integrated well into the story i would say until until clash of kings until she gets to harrenhal then things start she she has that actually i would say in common with john that they both start really getting interesting like halfway through the second book right yeah it's it's aria is very much like john where like her arc doesn't really take off until you know, actually, the funny thing is, it's the same event that triggers both of her and John becoming the interesting character, more interesting characters, and that's Ned Stark's death. Uh, I think that does have an impact because that's probably my favorite John chapter in a Game of Thrones, where John does his midnight ride after he learns of his father being killed down in down in King's Landing, and Arya as well. That we actually get Ned Stark's death from Arya's point of view, which is an interesting uh, take, um, and we will talk about that here in the coming months. Uh, for sure. Um, it, but I'm, I'm with you, Emmett, in, in that I, I really didn't like – I how do I say this? I, I didn't really like this chapter a whole lot. I thought that John wasn't a great chapter, but this chapter – I was trying to read it. I was, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm traveling as well right now. So I was trying to read it on a plane. I kept stopping and starting because I kept being kind of falling asleep and dozing off. And then finally I was able to read it and then read it and then read it again. So I read it three times. It, it does give us a good introduction to who Arya is, 
how that she's different from uh, the other. She's different. She's not like the other girls, quote unquote, to use a, a phrase that's in common vogue right now. Uh, there are some great ironic lines in this chapter that we'll talk about in our groundwork and theory section. Um, but no, not not really my my super favorite awesome chapter in this in this book. Um, I do like one of the things I do like about this chapter, though, is that we get a bit more about the direwolves. Uh, we get Nymeria and Ghost, which are interesting pairing. And it's also of interest that they are among the three surviving direwolves, right? So it's no four, right? So it's Summer, Shaggy Dog, Nymeria, and Ghost are the four that are still alive by the end of A Dance of Dragons into the Winds of Winter. Um, again, like you, I think I was surprised that Arya only has five chapters in A Game of Thrones. You kind of see that Martin's impulse is a bit of narrative consolidation. In, in Arya only having five, whereas in Clash of Kings, it kind of expands out where she has 12 or 13. I'd have to look to see how many she has. I think it's I think it's 10. She's got more than anyone except Tyrion in Clash. So she goes from having the fewest chapters in the first book to having the second most. In the second Interesting. Book. So it's definitely a big jump. Interesting. I actually did not know that. So 10 chapters in Clash, and then I think it's like 13 or 14 in Storm. Like. I'd have to, I'd have to look. Most of anybody in Storm. Yeah. Uh, more, more even than John or Tyrion. So yeah, he definitely, he's definitely laying the seeds here, kind of laying the groundwork for where he wants to go with her character, and then he definitely expands on it in the books to come. Yeah, what what I what I think is is really interesting, um, as Martin has said many many times, his favorite character is Tyrion. But his second favorite character is Arya Stark, and I do find that interesting that there's only five chapters, given that his that is his favorite character. Maybe she becomes his favorite character as she progresses in the book. Um, one of the things that, that George has talked about is that he ends up writing the book A Clash of Kings because he has way too much material for one book, and I wonder if there's a lot of the Arya material ended up getting cut to Clash, which would kind of make sense because her, her arc picks up almost within a few days of her um, witnessing Ned Stark's death. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting that George likes Arya, says, said that Arya is his second favorite character. Uh, she's not my second favorite character, unfortunately. Um, again, there's good stuff in the, in the chapter, but it is just kind of a, a, a introduction to Arya as, as a character. Whereas in the cat chapter, you get all sorts of plot, all sorts of story, all sorts of backstory. And then in the brand chapter, man, like the narrative is set on fire by, by uh, by Jamie Lannister pushing Bran Stark from from the window and uh, but yeah it's it's just it's it's, it, it's kind of a little bit boring it's a little bit dry but there are there are there are things that are enjoyable in the chapter and and we will talk about them as we progress totally it's it's a perfect chapter from a character introduction perspective plot wise you could almost put this chapter anywhere within this suite of early Winterfell chapters it, like it it doesn't feel like it's continuing anything from Catelyn two it doesn't feel like it's leading to anything in brand two it's just kind of there but character wise it's you can tell martin already has a strong grasp on Arya's character you got the very opening line Arya's stitches were crooked again uh, that immediately places her in this context of like shame and surveillance and not living up to standards and how this has impacted her every day the immediate contrast we get with sansa she says you know sansa was born first and got everything. She's got all these skills and everyone likes her and she's beautiful and she always knows just what to say and I don't. Uh, I think there's this is great little moment when like Sansa, uh, Arya's talking about how Sansa got to walk into the 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 feast with with the tall, handsome Prince Joffrey and Arya had to sit with the little fat one naturally, which I think is just a cute little petulant line. 
even though, you know, I'd much rather have dinner with Tom and then Joffrey. Any day of the week. <laughs> Tom is a sweetheart. Um, but yeah, and this is also the, the chapter where we first get a, where we get to see w- women interact with each other kind of on their own with yep. a, a male authority kind of dictating what's going on. Uh, there's, there's no Viserys here. There's no Ned. There's no Robert. Uh, there, you know, this isn't so much. So many of the previous chapters have been establishing like masculine codes of honor in action, whether you're talking mm-hmm. about the Night's Watch in the prologue, Ned trying to teach Bran how justice and execution works, uh, Tyrion trying to, Tyrion and Benjen trying to mentor John in his first chapter. And even Catelyn's chapters so far have been how she kind of relates to and deals with the men in her life but this is the first time we really get a sense of uh how women interact in this environment uh this is kind of a taste for what we'll get later when we get to the Tyrell court with Sansa where we really get Martin delving into okay how does a how does a, a space for women evolve in this medieval world how do they interact with each other what do they think of the men around them this is just kind of a, a little taste for that it's mostly just yeah about, the individual characterizations of Arya and Sansa, but it is it is a nice contrast, and you do see immediately where Martin is going with Arya in terms of gender and fitting in, and how she, you know, it, it's not just purely like Arya isn't. What I like about this chapter is that Arya is not purely defined by what she isn't. Right. It's not just Arya can't do this and Arya can't do that. You do get an affirmative sense of what she does like, like naming her wolf Nymeria is so revealing in terms of Arya's character. That this this fierce, proud leader, who you know shepherded her people and uh, you know never gave up and was sail all over the world. Like you can you can see both echoes in Arya's own storyline as as it goes forward, and you can see just what kind of person she is that she would think of naming her wolf that. It's it's as compa- you know nothing wrong with naming your wolf lady, but that is a very clear distinction between Arya and Sansa right off the bat in terms of how they think about their wolves. And how they think about their their Stark selves, and uh, yeah, Arya's Nymeria, Arya Nymeria relationship is very cute. You know, Nymeria's biting her hand and licking her ear, and Arya's giggling. And this is what makes it so heartbreaking when Arya is forced to to reject her and right. throw stones at her to make her. You know, it's the Harry and the Hendersons moment. Can't you see? I don't want you anymore. <laughs> uh, that she gets gets later at the Trident. Uh, send you know the classic sending the beast into the woods for its own good scene. So we, you know, you get the, you get the sweet relationship between her and her wolf, and this to kind of set that up later, and then yeah, the 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 Arya John dynamic, which is the heart of the chapter. It that is a an interesting um, dynamic to be sure, and I've, I've got a lot to say about that a little bit later on. But I was I was curious. Um, you had mentioned about uh, the sewing circle and about that being a traditional female role, and then you talked about the the courtyard. Um, do you think that there's a that Martin is intentionally contrasting these two things in Arya's life and kind of talking a little bit about um, Arya's unique individuality in, in terms of that she doesn't have a lot of these traditional female um, pursuits or she's not interested rather in traditional female pursuits. And she's more interested in a, another kind of needlework that is the one that's taking place in the winter in the Winterfell yard. Do you think that's intentional Martin's part that he's writing it that way? Absolutely. That's a great point. I think that's built into the structure of this chapter. You have these two social circles. You have you got the sewing circle and you got the the training yard. And they're, you know, they're they're the two poles of this chapter and Arya feels like an outsider in both. I mean, she's supposed to belong to the sewing circle, but she feels out of place there. She can't live up to the standards. She doesn't enjoy the conversation and then when she tries to take part in the martial world, she has to stand outside as a detached observer. 
And you, so it's you can see Martin critiquing both worlds in that. You can see him saying that okay, so, you know, Septa Mordain is being extremely unfeeling, and she's not trying to make Arya care about what she's doing, but just you know, just blame her. And you can see his, his critique of the the masculine, the prescribed masculine domain that that keeps uh, people like Arya out, and is. I think, you know, so much of a Game of Thrones from the title on down is about learning the rules. You know, you got Dany with the Dothraki, you got John at Castle Black, you got Ned in King's Landing. It's about learning systems and codes and trying to find a way to live within them. And that does come up in this chapter. You got the, the great line, John says, Girls get the arms but not the swords. Bastards get the swords but not the arms. I did not make the rules, little sister. <laughs> right. And you get, this, you get this sense of how arbitrary and punishing those rules can be and how exhausting it is for, for when you don't fit into them. And that is that is very poignant, and something that reflects throughout Arya's story, that there are these these worlds that she just can't fit in, and it's, it's not necessarily easier for those who do. Like I mean, Sansa fits perfectly into that little bubble, but as we learn later in the book, that just makes it all the more kind of horrifying for her when the bubble bursts and it's all just gone. This this yeah. world that she did fit into is all the more traumatic because she belonged there, and uh, you know this the more masculine world of, of fighting and training. Uh, you know, ultimately doesn't, you know, by the time you get to Rob as a king, he's like, okay, that's the part I understood. The fighting and the training is the part I got, but it yeah. didn't help me with the rest. It didn't help me how to handle, like, executing my friend's father. It didn't prepare me for any of this. Right. So you you do get a critique of both those worlds, but, like, not, not in, the, like, a like a shallow, grim, dark, everything is meaningless kind of way, but in, like, this kind of sad, sweet, like, oh, if only this could have worked out. For these people we care about, if only they could have found a way, if only society could have integrated them better, there's so much lost potential going on here. It doesn't feel, like, pretentious or holier than no. thou. It feels, it's it's a critique that's laced with a lot of understanding and a lot of love, and I think that that is also something that extends throughout the series and is absolutely essential to making the Song of Ice and Fire work, because there are definitely moments in the series where you could see, okay, this, this could so easily slip into just shallow finger wagging right right it's good that he mostly avoided that no i think you're you know i think you're absolutely right i think it it could be a shallow critique of oh well you know women's work is is aria doesn't want to do women's work so that's you know she's the she's the obvious hero but then we get the contrast when sansa comes into the story where where sansa's is occupying a traditional female sphere and she is very in touch with her feminine femininity it's always a hard, a hard word for me for whatever reason. Um, I'm sure I'll get shit from Natalie for that. Um, but, uh, but, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's a great uh, contrast between the, the two scenes. And I do always like your repeatedly bringing us back to that idea that Martin is, is saying, yeah, there's, there's, there's something wrong with what is going on in in this traditional patriarchal society where the women are, are relegated to one role and the men are relegated to another, uh, where they might not necessarily fit into those roles as neatly as as we would, as as uh, in terms of their personality, because Arya's personality is is driven towards a more uh, I don't want to say masculine, but I guess it more Westerosi traditional masculinity role of being a fighter and and wielding needle as we find out later in the story. Um, uh, when when John gives her needle, it's interesting because it's a mixture of her wanting to be more tomboyish and also wanting to be more like the small folk. Like they, those are those kind of the two intertwined Arya desires that I think are interestingly compared throughout her her arc. That she, yeah, she wants to fight. She doesn't 
mind being messy. She doesn't like fancy clothes. Uh, and she also, like, Santa, will, Santa says she'll make friends with anybody and hang out with anybody. And those those two are kind of interestingly kind of linked at certain points throughout the series. So that's something we're going to get into. But yeah, what I what I do love about this chapter on Reread is is the that Martin doesn't take the next step and say, okay, so when woman's work is prescribed in this world, they're kept in rigid boundaries, they're, they're punished for stepping outside. He doesn't take the next step and say, therefore, women's lives in this society are meaningless and they never experience anything worth talking about and sewing is stupid. It's, it's the difference between what Arya says in this chapter, quote, the woman is important too, versus what she says in the show, quote, most girls are idiots. There's, there's oh, a, I think a critical difference in philosophy here that I think the show missed, yes. which is, yeah, you can pitilessly expose patriarchal control without devaluing the lives of women who live in that system and saying that everything they do and think is therefore stupid and ridiculous. It's so easy to backwalk your way into misogyny while trying to be progressive in that way, like where you <laughs> are trying to advocate on behalf of women being liberated from the systems, but you end up like dismissing and condescending the individual women in question who are still just trying to live their lives right. in that system. And I think I love Arya's line in this chapter, the woman is important too, because she's, it, it clearly separates, no, she's not Cersei. She's not like full of internalized misogyny and hatred of her own gender and thinking of her gender as weak and stupid. That's what Cersei thinks. Yep. Arya is taking this much broader perspective of, no, we... We matter as individuals, and we should be we should be given room to grow and change as individuals. You know, just like men are. I mean, men aren't always allowed to do that in patriarchal societies either. No. But certainly, given much more latitude than women are, and that that you know, Arya is trying to flower into that kind of person, and that's something I really love about her character as it's established here. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too is that this chapter is not about why sewing is stupid and an idiotic pursuit. It's actually exactly. about why it's not a good fit for Arya Stark herself. Because I, and I, and I believe that several friends of ours, um, the one that I listened to most recently is uh, the Maester Monthly episode about the women of Westeros, uh, are the person who we've actually thanked a couple times in the past. Uh, Mighty Isabel made a great point in that episode where she says, you know, sewing is not dumb because sewing keeps clothes on people's bodies when it's going to be freaking cold because you're in the north you're in winterfell when the when winter comes it could be years long and you need the clothes that the women are making and this has a very real utilitarian function in the survival of people in the north and in and around winterfell it's just not a good fit for Arya stark because Arya's is not drawn to that world but it's not a critique necessarily of the pursuit if that makes sense so instead Absolutely. of yeah instead of women being our most women are idiots which is a dumb thing that the show ended up doing i don't know why they did that i guess i mean i know why they did that but i also feel like that they got a significant amount of blowback for that line and rightfully so in my opinion um, that these pursuits, though, do have meaning and purpose, and they do tend to um, have a, a sense of, of, of survival embedded into them that, that just doesn't sometimes translate as well in, in the show as well. Um, but yeah, I, this, but yeah, so it's interesting that, that you have the two environments, the sewing circle and the, the training yard that are, that are contrasted here, and that you have uh, Arya's take on both of them and you do get the perspective too about how unfair the society can be towards people when they don't necessarily fit into when they're, when they're square pegs trying to fit into round holes. But yeah, 
Um, one of the things I, I, I really like about this chapter uh, is uh, kind of about the Winterfell Yard. And that is, I enjoy filling out the Winterfell retinue. Uh, this chapter gives us our first introduction to Sir Roger Grissel, who is a excellent secondary character who plays a major role come A Clash of Kings, where he's riding all over the north trying to stamp out the Ironborn invasion. And then he is killed, um, murdered rather, by Ramsay Snow at the end of A Clash of Kings in Theon's final chapter. A um, little bit of trivia. Um, he is played by Ron Donachie, who is a excellent uh character actor in British cinema, who is actually, this is something I found out not not too recently, but, a, but probably about a year or two ago. He's the father of Daniel Portman, who plays Patrick Payne in the show. And uh, yeah, he's he's a great actor. Uh, Ron Donachie also read, did the audiobook for Fever Dream, which is excellent. Um, he, it's a, another really good book, but he does a great job reading uh, one of George's earlier books, the vampire fiction books, book. If you're interested in reading it, I highly recommend it. Um, the other thing I really, really like about this chapter is our introduction to our, our noir, our noir character. And that is the character of Sandra Clegane. And I love how he's challenging Rob Stark and telling him that he killed his first boy at the age of 12 and how he's always angry. And you can just tell like, he's just dripping with personality, even when he has, you know, all of about three sentences of lines in this chapter. But yeah, he's he's a terrific character, and I, and I love his, our little introduction to him. Yeah, it's especially notable that Sandra Clegane is introduced to us from the perspective of a Stark sister, because of course he is. His story will revolve around Arya and Sansa almost exclusively, really, up until uh, he, he ends up on the Quiet Isle. And then even then, as, as many people have noted, when uh, the fact that the elder brother knows so much about Sansa Stark clearly means that Sandor has just been talking nonstop about Sansa since he got to the Quiet Isle. Uh, and obviously he has a huge relationship with Arya and Storm of Swords. And it, it, it fits this chapter's, these chapter's themes and Arya's overall arc that uh, Sandor's line is, his opening line is, are you training women here? He, <laughs> he says that to Sir Roderick in terms of Sir Roderick not allowing Rob and Joffrey to use live steel. Uh, that fits so perfectly with the kind of struggling against gender roles that Arya is dealing with in this chapter. And uh, it's coming from someone we later come to realize from Sansa's POV is very much performing this toughness, this badassery, this like, yeah, I'm the cool, you know, I'm the the hardest man in this yard. and I know how things really are. And yeah, I killed a man at 12. You can be sure it was not with a blunt sword. Yeah. Like all of that is a defense mechanism that he keeps up to tell himself that he's not still a little kid whose brother is shoving his face into an open fire. Like, right. we gradually realize that, again, leading into the topics of, of gender and identity performance and all that stuff, that this this uber-masculine uh, performance is just that. It's something he uses to protect himself from how horrible the world of, of war and violence really is outside the prescribed world of the training yard. So while he comes off as someone in this initial chapter as someone who's just high on his own reputation and just loves violence in retrospect like he's almost saying to to Rob and Joffrey the same thing he's going to be saying to Sansa later like look this is how the world is it's it's just live steel and people who use it i'm honest it's the world that's awful right. he'll say to Sansa so you do immediately yeah get the sense of that personality and like you say he's just Sandor again is immediately a gripping, compelling character, even though you've got no reason to like him at first. But he's so distinct the way he's written. His dialogue stands out so strongly from everyone else around him. You can just hear that roaring, rasping voice in your ear every yes. time he talks. Like I love how in Sansa chapters, how often she describes the sound of his voice. It's always like a, a knife on stone or something like that. And he's, he's, such, he's such, a, such a distinct and vivid character. 
but yeah, like you said, it's where we meet Roger Cassell, where we get more into the, the kind of, again, the codes of masculinity. It's how it's practiced among young men being raised in this environment. One thing I don't like too much about this chapter is that, uh, is when Rob kind of loses his temper. I don't, I don't find Rob especially interesting when he's like angry or aggressive <laughs> because we're not really, we're not really in his head to like kind of undercut that the way like we are when like Theon acts, acts all proud and masculine in his POV chapters we have access to his thoughts we know how insecure he is with Rob I always find him a lot more interesting when he's vulnerable and he's like yeah. admitting that he doesn't quite know what to do like in his, the next Catalan chapter when he's trying to tell her like Rickon is coming to me with all these questions I don't know what to tell him you gotta right. help me like that's that's for me when Rob really gets interesting and I love his dynamic with Catalan uh, here he's not hugely compelling he's just kind of kind of an angry teenager being being set up to fight joffrey uh but it it does work in terms of i do like the contrast between sansa's conversation the sewing circle her conversation with jane Poole and beth cassell about i'm going to marry joffrey and everything's going to go perfectly and i'm going to have their sons and then you cut to the yard and it's like rob and joffrey are already at each, other, <laughs> at each other's throats and it's like no this is not going to go that well right uh, it's like the it, it you know which ends up kind of being reflected in the Tyrells again later on when you have Marjorie marrying Joff, but like Loras, Loras being there is a recipe for Kingslayer stew. So you have that right. the, the, that theme of, of the hot-headed brother is going to cause a problem. And that goes back to Brandon too, you know, riding into yep. the Red Keep, yelling to Rhaegar to come out and die. There's always hot, hot-headed hot brothers causing trouble is a recurring theme in this series. It, it, it is. It's a it's a great little theme too. Um, that's a... Uh, Something that will definitely, and then you have Ranley too, being the hot-headed. I guess he's not hot-headed. He's just a little prick. Um, he's just, but, he uh, just sucks. He's just the worst. Uh, yeah, just yeah worst I didn't actually, I didn't know that detail at all about uh, Ron Donnacky being uh, father to Daniel Portman, who plays Pod. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a, perfect. I imagine. They yeah, like a, I, I road together. I'm sure. Oh yeah, that would be that would be a great little road movie. Him and his his father playing on a yeah. Um, Kind of, kind of like similar. Like my uh, my dislike for for this chapter is um, well, actually not 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 totally similar, but but my dislike for this chapter is uh, Septa Mordain uh, as a character. And this is going to be again a recurring thing in uh, in a Game of Thrones is that she has the mean nun stereotype, and she's written that way. And this doesn't get a lot of correction in the book later on. You don't find a, a motivation, something like that. She was raised by an abusive. Um, I don't I don't know what the what the term is for a, a a septa who's like in a higher rank than than other septas. Oh, mother, a mother, right? Is that what they call them? She was, yeah, the mother superior abused her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the mother superior abused her, or she was raised in a extremely strict religious house, and she was forced to go into to become a septa. You don't really get kind of that Martin esque type of unraveling of the character where you find out more about her. And Martin does do this with secondary characters a lot of times, where you find out a lot more motivation about why they are the way that they are, like Sandra Clegane. Uh, who is the kind of the contrast to Septim Ordain, where you find out that he is the way that he is because of the horrors that have been visited on him in his past with his abusive, horrible brother and watching him gain favor in this world because he's a brute, because he fits well into this conception of being a warrior. And, and Sander Clegane sees that he's rewarded and is reacting against that throughout his chapters, or rather throughout his chapters, throughout other people, throughout Sansa and Arya's chapters. Um, September Dane doesn't have that necessarily in, in her chapters, unfortunately, um, where you, you find out more about her and understand her underlying motivation. 
And I do understand that she does, she is set up to be a foil to Arya and a bit to Sansa later on. Um, but, but again, it, it does kind of, it's not my favorite dynamic in the chapter where you have um, a, a character that just is, is mean for no reason, if, if that makes sense. Exactly. I think the contrast with Sandor is very illuminating. I think that's, that's a great point that uh, Sandor's backstory isn't just horrifying in terms of what happened to him as an individual. It's this larger critique he's making of the system he's in, where it's like, look, Gregor was anointed by the crown prince Rhaegar Targaryen. Everyone loves him. And yet I know what Gregor is and no one seems to care. And this system doesn't contradict that at all. You don't really get a sense of Mordane within a social context. You don't Martin does not use her to dig into the faith the way he uses Sandor to dig into knighthood. Right. There's no larger perspective. And part of me wonders if this is one of the product of Martin's lapsed Catholicism, where up until Feast, we really don't get close to anyone within the hierarchy of the faith. Up until we get to Brienne's chapters where she meets Septon Maribald and the older brother. Prior to that, we really don't spend much time with, or Martin doesn't put much energy into fleshing out, any characters within the hierarchy of the faith. As compared to the Maesters, whom he, in this first yes. book, immediately delves into as distinct characters worthy of interest, with Lewin and Aemon, and even even Pycelle as a villainous character, as, as just this lecherous, horrible wretch. Right. He still stands out as a vivid, distinct character with motivations. Whereas, I think you said it perfectly, Mordain is just mean because she's mean, and there's just, there's yeah, there's nothing really going I would have yeah. loved, like, it would have taken, like, one line of her, like, getting drunk and telling Arya, you know, something nice, or, like, reveal that Mordain liked masculine things in her childhood and had it beaten out of her, so she thinks she's doing Arya a favor. Like, you know, it wouldn't make her an angel. But you know, give right. us something to flesh out her personality a little bit. Just, you know, if, if nothing else, to make us feel it a little bit more when she dies. Yeah, and it is horrible when she dies. Don't get me wrong, when, when Sansa's looking oh, yeah. at her head up on a spike it just doesn't have for me it doesn't have the same resonance as when Roderick Cassell dies at, a, at the end of A Clash of Kings or when Maester Lewin dies also at the end of A Clash of Kings like those are extremely sad moments for these characters but they're built much more out of the events that are happening to them and you get to know these guys it's really sad when Cassell dies because you know he's one of the last of his line Beth Cassell is the only other person that that, that is outliving him in, in House Cassell's, uh, that is bearing the name of, of Cassell going forward. Hopefully she's still alive in, in, in some point at the end of Dance of Dragons. We, don't re- we really don't know. Um, but the same kind of goes, too, for Lewin when Lewin dies because you have so much more about, about him when he's instructing Bran and when he's trying to be a father figure to Brandon Stark in, in a clash of Kings, especially when everyone has essentially left him in Winterfell alone to kind of run the castle. You know, it, it's, it's meaningful when he dies. And I do think it's a terrific point you bring up at that Martin's lapse. Catholicism is, is in vogue here or is rather in view in that, you know, you, the, the characters of the faith, you know, you, even when you get to Tyrion's clash of Kings chapters, the, the Pope figure or the high Septon, it's just a fat idiot who is squandering people's wealth and all of these things. And it does kind of read a little bit, um, I'm trying to think of the right word that would describe it. It reads kind of a bit stereotypical and a bit cartoonish. And uh, yeah, it, it does have an impact. And Martin's Lapse Catholicism is an interesting uh, subject of discussion in and of itself. I, I really, I, I've actually really been curious whether that, he introduces Maribald and the elder brother um, because he's writing against some of his earlier work where he's realizing that, yeah, all of these, these septons are all 
fat, obese. They're rapists like the one Septon who was with the Bloody Mummers in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Sword. Uh, yeah, 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 he's a nightmare. Um, but so he has to show a contrast because, because you know, you would think about this from a from a human human perspective, and you would think, why would anyone follow the faith of the seven if all of their clergy are a bunch of frauds, rapists, murderers, and you know, just utterly awful? And then he brings in characters like Maribold and the elder brother and some of the other brothers at the Quiet Isle to help show that yeah, there is some appeal in the faith of the seven, and that when it is practiced in a way that is not monstrous that the faith of seven can be a force for good, even though it's almost certainly a, a false religion. There's absolutely no way that the faith of the, the seven gods are real, but we can talk about that at another point in, in, in this story. We have a whole lot of chapters to, to get into. This is true. There's, there's a, when you brought up the, uh, the, the first high sept in the series as being this just fat idiot who gets torn to pieces, there is a, like a frisson of like gleeful, pot-shotting teenage atheism there. Yeah. Like, it reminds me of, like... It reminds me of the tone of, like, YouTube atheists, like people who love Bill Maher. Right. And, like, just love taking shots at religious people just for the sake of it. There's a little hint of that I get early on from some Martin stuff about the Faith of the Seven. Like, this is the kind of stuff he thought about the Catholic Church when he first left it, and he hasn't really revisited as an adult, so it comes off as kind of immature. Yeah. I mean, like, not that there's anything wrong with portraying religious elites as venal and self-obsessed and greedy, because that's that's certainly true. not inaccurate. In it can be true, yeah. Life, but like, but you need a you, that can't be the only perspective. You got to broaden the picture and say, okay, but as you said, why would anyone follow this faith at all if it, if it's like this all the way up and down the ladder? When you get to feast, you get the kind of the flip side to the sparrows versus Septon Marable and Elder Brother. You can get the sense of Martin really digging into the faith and being, okay, what is let me give this world elements of my world building a little oomph. He, he spends so much time admirably, I think, in exploring all the ambiguities of relorism as religion. Yeah. On the on the one hand, you have burning people, which is horrifying. <laughs> but on the other hand, you have you know Barracks Crusade in the Riverlands, and you have the anti-slavery crusade being driven by relorite activists in Essos, and you have uh, even Melisandre, like she's right about the threat to the world, and you see her trying to like keep Devin Seaworth safe. So that he, you know you can see him building in those those ambiguities, knowing he needs to flesh out Relorism, where it's just going to be the scary red fire god from the east. Right. Uh, with the faith, with the faith early on, you can see this with Septim Ordain to bring it back around to this chapter. Uh, <laughs> that 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 depth is is not quite there. Um, no. But in, but in terms of. Uh, foreshadowing events to come as well as laying the seeds for interesting character dynamics and themes about gender and religion to pay off later there was also as we've been discussing throughout this first book some abandoned foreshadowing some uh, stuff that uh, foretells events that don't come to pass because martin was still working at least partially from the frame is of his initial pitch letter so we got a couple great examples from this chapter we do that good sir we do. It's um, this. This is basically the, these first couple chapters. I feel like our, our groundwork discussions have all been, and now Jeff talks about the way that Martin was going to write a Game of Thrones that he ends up abandoning. <laughs> but uh, but it's all good. Using uh, it for the better. Yeah. Right. It, it is absolutely everything that Martin abandons in in I believe in your opinion as well as mine. It was a good abandonment. He rewrote it to a better to a better way. And one of those um, ways is um in my opinion is that the robin joffrey antagonism so in this chapter as as we talked about previously 
they're Rob Stark and Joffrey are in the fighting yard or rather in the courtyard. They have already fought. Rob gave more strikes to Joffrey than he received. Um, but there is a uh, a bit of interesting line in, in this chapter where Rob or rather that Joffrey says, come back to me when you're older. Maybe when you're older, you can use live steel sort of thing. And um, this actually is interesting because it was a it looks like to me that it was originally set up as foreshadowing for what Martin originally envisioned uh, the story to be. And this is a line from his 1993 letter, which we've talked about in significant depth previously. So the letter says, quote, all the North will be inflamed by war. Rob will win several splendid victories and maim Joffrey Baratheon on the battlefield. But in the end, he will not be able to stand against Jamie and Tyrion Lannister and their allies. So Rob and Joffrey's verbal sparring and the comeback to me when you're older sets up the groundwork for Rob maiming Joffrey with live steel in George's original conception of A Game of Thrones. Instead, in the published version, it becomes more general foreshadowing of Rob and Joff's animus as warring kings come the later books. And I, you know, I, as much as I would have enjoyed seeing Rob Stark, like, put a sword through Joffrey's leg or something like that in, in the books, I do think it works better that they never actual, they never come to actual blows uh, beyond this, this chapter here. I think that's a, a more interesting dynamic that Rob is the one who's out fighting his way through the Riverlands and into the Westerlands and Rob and rather Joffrey is cowering behind the walls of, of King's Landing. Uh, I do think that works a whole lot better here, but it's 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 still uh, it, 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 you could still see that Martin is looking ends up not rewriting this Um and I'm not sure what, quite why he didn't rewrite this the way he did. Maybe he just thought it was a really good line. I mean, it is a really good line because John immediately says that, man, Joffrey is such a little shit right after this, right after he hears Joffrey uh, being a little shit to, to Rob Stark. But at the same time, it's interesting abandoned foreshadowing. Um, and again, it's something that we're going to see, I think, maybe in one or two more instances after this chapter. Agreed. It's I, I think you're absolutely right that it worked out much better. In canon, where Joffrey cowered behind the walls of King's Landing and just talked about leading armies out to fight Rob or Stannis or whoever, and everyone around him knows that's a joke. Yep. I think that works much better for Joffrey's character. Uh, but it's one of those instances where it doesn't... I don't think it does harm to the text to leave it in, because Rob and Joffrey hating each other is just good groundwork for the Stark-Lannister war that breaks yes. out at the end of the book. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel inconsistent with what happens. It just clearly hints... Once... once Here's how I'd put it. If you didn't know about the pitch letter, if you hadn't read the original draft of that, if you didn't know what Martin was going for, I don't think this would stand out weirdly to you. No. In the way that some other in the way that some other abandoned stuff like Tyrion tumbling around, uh, that stands out. <laughs> yes. Uh, but this 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 fits nicely enough into the overall broad pattern of growing Stark Lannister antagonism that I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's problematic that it's still in the text. I think it, yeah. So I think it's, I think it works fine that it's still in there. But yeah, uh, it is, <laughs> it is amusing to consider if Joffrey getting comeuppance for that line a couple yeah. of times down the line as Rob you know, cuts off a foot or whatever. But there's a, but there's, it's interesting. You talked about how this line would fit well uh, in, in the context, even if you didn't know the pitch letter. Um, but there's, there, what's kind of a little bit disturbing though, if, if you're looking at it, is that there is a bit of other different type of abandoned foreshadowing from the pitch letter. And it is for the Arya love triangle, the famous or infamous, I guess I would say infamous Arya love triangle, which is boo, awful. Probably the best thing that Martin ever abandoned from his original pitch letter. Um, so the pitch letter, and this is a little bit of a lengthier quote, but I'll read it real quick. 
The pitch letter George R. R. Martin says, When Winterfell burns, Catelyn Stark will be forced to flee north with her son Bran and her daughter Arya. Hounded by Lannister riders, they will seek refuge at the Wall, but the men of the Night's Watch give up their families when they take the Black. And Jon and Benjen will not be able to help, to Jon's anguish. It will lead to bitter estrangement between Jon and Arya. Arya will be more forgiving until, oh gosh, until she realizes with terror that she has fallen in love with Jon, who is not only her half-brother, but a man of the Night's Watch sworn to celibacy. Their passion will continue... (laughs) This is so ridiculous. Their passion will continue to torment John and Arya throughout the trilogy until the secret of John's parentage is finally revealed in the last book. <sighs> okay. And then later on. Not enough. And then. Yeah. <laughs> it gets better. Don't just, it, just wait. This is again from the letter. Quote, exiled. Tyrion will change sides, making common cause with the surviving Starks to bring his brother down and falling helplessly in love with Arya Stark while he's at it. His passion is, <laughs> alas, unreciprocated, but no less intense for that, and will lead to deadly rivalry between Tyrion and Jon Snow. Like, oh my gosh. Alas, alas, what a shame, Jeff, that we didn't get to see the wonderful Tyrion-Arya romance bloom. Yeah, there's. this is just... Uh, it makes no sense for any of the three characters involved. None of their dynamics work this way. It's... It's insipid, it's shallow, it feels extremely forced, it feels like Martin needed to have a conflict here and just kind of made one up. Yeah. I mean, obviously these these characters change in his head between the pitch letter and when he was writing Game of Thrones, obviously in many respects, but this is just like... No, go ahead. ahead. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, like, if you read the John Arya dynamic in this chapter, no, there's no repressed romanticism bursting at the seams here. These are siblings. We love each other, as siblings. It's it's and that's just not just me being a prude. Like that that's that's the dynamic. That's clearly the emotional energy that comes through from the page. Right. So at this point, I hope he either was either moving. I hope he was moving away from it at this point because if that's what he thinks the groundwork for a romantic relationship looks like, that doesn't speak to his ability to write those well. I would say. I don't I don't see it I don't see it in the text at all. So I hope he'd already started to move on by the time he wrote this chapter or finalized this chapter. I really hope that he revised it. Like when I I really hope that that John Mussing Tyrion uh, that John Mussing Arya's hair was uh, is is was rewritten as more of a brother sister sort of thing and didn't have the romantic overtones that Martin perhaps orig- or did originally intend. Because that would be disturbing and that would give the relationship dynamic a whole other bad, bad way of writing it. Like it, the way this reads to me, this this Arya, John, Tyrion love triangle, it reads really trite and it reads very much not like the story of A Song of Ice and Fire, which, you know, which it, it kind of reads like basically, like you said, it's just in, in, inflecting conflict into the narrative so that we are still caring about the characters. And I think what Martin has written instead makes it much more dynamic because, you know, I, I love that Arya line from A Feast for Crows where Needle was John, Needle was Winterfell. And, and I'm and I'm mangling the quote. I apologize because I don't have it in front of me right now. But it's just, it's written so much better as it is right now with Arya and John having a real brother and sisterly affection for each other, which really comes out in John's next chapter where John, you know, gifts Arya a needle and, um, you know, they hug and it's very tender and it's, and it's something 
that you would you would think that that siblings would would do with each other, and they do. Um, that siblings do like each other rather, uh, and they do like each other. Um, but no, it's 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 so much better the way it, it's written now. I really am, am glad that Martin has changed a lot of this stuff. I I, I really hope that the mussing of of Arya's hair wasn't originally in the original portion of this this chapter because that would kind of give it a very um, sinister kind of twist in my mind. But you know, someday I'm, I'm sure that there'll be some scholar who'll go through George R. R. Martin's archives and see what George's original, you know, I think he, he submitted, if I remember correctly, he submitted 11 chapters, the, the first 11 chapters in A Game of Thrones, along with his pitch letter, about 300 or so pages of, or 200 pages of the book. Um, so yeah, it would be interesting to see what was is in there in that original narrative pitch. And uh, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, I'm just so freaking glad that George abandoned this, man. I'm just so glad. Yeah, it, would, it feels just like a, a cheap way to introduce conflict and a cheap shock in terms of, like, despoiling innocence, because I'm guessing maybe that's what he was going for originally. It was like, oh, Arya and John get along, John and Tyrion get along, but oh, as they get older and they get more involved with the war, like, the passion is probably supposed to reflect that or something, something, something. But for me, it's so much more interesting what we get in the text about, you know, John's love for Arya interfering with his duties as Lord Commander. I think that's a much more interesting dynamic and a a much more compelling way to flesh out that that conflict than just like, oh, but he's he's in love with her. That innocence is gone. That just seems like a like a a, a shallow way of of introducing that conflict into uh, a a shallow way of making that relationship troubled and dramatically potent. Whereas I think what he ended up going with in Dance with Dragons and Feast for Crows, as you said, with Needle as Jon Snow's smile. I think he ended up in a much better place. Absolutely, hundred um, percent. While while we're still talking about John, um, there is a bit of R plus L equals J stuff in this chapter as well. Uh, this is actually probably one of my favorite lines from this chapter, or favorite portions of this chapter rather. Um, so while Arya and John are watching the boys fight, Arya asks John, "Why aren't you down in the yard?" And John gives her a half mile and says. Bastards are not allowed to damage young princes. Any bruises they take to in, the pra- in the practice yard must come from true-born swords. I, I love this this line uh, by Johns for the irony, given that Joffrey is the bastard in this situation, while John is the true-born prince. Or, I, and I tend to follow to be in this 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 line of, of thinking, or as so as surmised as depending on your take on RLJ, there is. Theory that John is still a bastard, even if he's Rhaegar and Lyanna's. I more tend to favor that they were married in some capacity, and that John is not actually a bastard. But you know, everyone's take on RLJ can be a little bit different. We'll wait for the books to reveal more. But I do love the irony in that line. It's it's a great little ironic line that George was probably giggling to himself as he was putting it into his Word Star Four Thousand as he was uh, writing this book. <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful little contrast there for sure. Uh, yeah, Joffrey being so proud of his, and you can see it in Joffrey being so proud of his Lannister parentage that he puts it on the arms. Oh so yeah, that's an early clue that I mean, obviously Joffrey doesn't know this, but that the he's he's really Lannister on both sides. Yes, absolutely. Um, the final uh, thing that was uh, interesting about this chapter that I that I saw is uh, we talked about Sandra Clegane earlier killing his first man at twelve. In uh, so we so just kind of doing a little bit of the back of the napkin math, you know, Sandra Clegane is about 29, 30 years old in this chapter, I believe. Maybe he's a little bit younger. I think he actually yeah, late twenties, I think late twenties, yeah. 
So uh, if he killed his first man at 12, when who was it? What exactly was he doing killing someone at the age of 12? Well, we actually do have a bit of a answer on that. So in a 2005 convention appearance, George R. R. Martin was asked this question. The question was, was Sander part of Tywin's party at the sack of King's Landing? And George's answer was yes. So doing a little bit of back of the napkin math, as we talked about before. We know from the Wiki of Ice and Fire that Sander was born in 270 or 271, which puts him at the age of 12 during the sack of King's Landing, meaning that his first kill was almost certainly during Tywin Lannister's horrific sack of King's Landing. So not a happy bit of groundwork there or a little bit of trivia, but it's it does fit with what George has said. And um, yeah, that, that was probably kind of brutal having a 12 year old kill someone probably most likely a civilian right if, since most of Ares' army abandoned him at that point and it happened at the same time that his brothers you know scaled makers hold fast and committed atrocities against uh, princess Ilya and her children and um and that fits sandor's story so perfectly that he lost just as he lost his innocence when gregor shoved his face into the flames he lost another layer, layer of innocence at king's landing while gregor was committing more atrocities in the same place so yeah, that, that fits that fits Sandor perfectly in a very in a very sad, depressing way. It does. It it really does. But um, but yeah. Um, so, we'll, we and, and again for the future, we'll we'll keep trying to look for more stuff that Martin has said. There is a great uh, website if you are not familiar with it. I assume that many of you are, but it's called the So Spake Martin Archive, and it chronicles everything that George R. R. Martin has said about a Song of Ice and Fire from 1990. Up until the current day. So we're talking about 28 years of stuff that Martin has said that is compiled by Elio uh, Garcia Jr. and Lyndon Antonson of Westeros.org. So check that out if you haven't already. Amen, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get the line in there somewhere. Shot. You guys got to take a shot now. Exactly. So speaking of potentially horribly depression uh, foreshadowing and links, in terms of the theory to debate within this chapter you know it's not a huge plot chapter so there's not much grist for theory but one line near the end of this chapter has provoked a lot of speculation and that is uh john teasing aria you had best run back to your room little sister septimordain will surely be lurking the longer you hide the sterner the pennant the, the sterner the penance you'll be sewing all through winter and here's the line when the spring thaw comes they will find your body with a needle still locked tight between your frozen fingers Ooh. Given that, of course, Needle is the name of Arya's sword, and that you know winter is coming for us all, a lot of people have taken this image as foreshadowing of Arya dying uh, at some point during the Second Battle for the Dawn, and, and you know being discovered as part of the the, the post others frozen wastes with Needle locked between her fingers. Do you think that Arya's going to so die? Do you think of that, sir? No, I, I'm asking you first. I'm I'm, I'm preempting you. I'm making, I'm getting make sure that you get your word. It's tough. I'm, on the one hand, like that is a really distinct metaphorical image, and I think the case that it's referring to Arya's death is is strong, given again that this you know a couple chapters later we get Arya's sword named Needle. Uh, part of me it kind of conflicts with what I think about Arya's arc overall in terms of Needle representing home and her you know struggling against the faceless men's temptation to give up her identity and all the pain that goes with it. And I think it's. I think her overall arc is going to take kind of a restorative turn in terms of that stuff. I think she's going to re-embrace her old self and her family, go back to Winterfell. Uh, so that's not necessarily contradictory with her having that sad ending of dying in the battle. She could, you know, have a moment where she embraces her, her stark self and her family again, and then that happens. But yeah, for me, it it it, it's, it would be slightly contradictory with that stuff. But again. 
it all depends on execution. I think Martin can certainly pull that off. So I'm, I'm not opposed to it, but I'm not exactly a true believer. What do you think, sir? So I think there's there's a couple things of agreement here. We both agree that Arya will return to Westeros at some point. Absolutely. She has to get her wolf back, if nothing else. Right. She has to have some sort of re- reuniting with Nymeria. And we did see a kind of a weird way that the show did it in season seven with that's not you sort of thing, which uh, has led to a lot of stupid and silly debate um, about what Arya is talking about there. Um, but I think we agree that Arya will return to Westeros. I would also tend to favor that she will end up in and around Winterfell in some capacity. But I do think that Arya Stark as Arya Stark um, will will die. Um, I, I don't like to say that because I, I, I do like Arya Stark, although she's not one of my favorite point of view characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think she's a great character. Um, and I do think that there is a bit of setup there with Arya signing on with a death cult, but even greater setup with Arya doing significant warging from huge distances, right? And we're talking about thousands of miles between Bravos and the, and the Riverlands in Feast and Dance, where she is living inside of Nymeria as Nymeria is tearing through the Riverlands and sometimes killing people, um, including the farmer, which is kind of a really kind of shocking and horrible thing if you if you read it into it a bit into a bit depth in one of Arya's feast chapters I believe maybe it's her dance chapter I have to I have to look back and at that um, but I do think that if Arya dies that she will be going into the um, the essence of her wolf I think we see a lot of that with Varamir's uh, Sixkin's prologue where um, his essence lives on in different creatures and in wolves as Varamir ends up in one of the wolves uh, that brand and uh, and summer take over uh, the wolf pack in a dance with dragons. I think that is a a strong potential that Arya will die in some capacity, perhaps killed by the others, perhaps hopefully not killed in some sort by the Boltons. I think that would be a I don't think that would be a necessarily a good turn, but I think her dying fighting the others or dying in some sort of capacity and against the, the others would, would work well. And then her living on in, in Nymeria would have a kind of that bittersweet sense that Martin's talked about. And then that is something that Martin has said repeatedly that the ending of A Song of Ice and Fire is bittersweet. Uh, I, I can see that Arya dying, but living on in Nymeria, having that same sort of Frodo surviving the, um, the, the quest for the ring and to destroy the ring, but then, you know, always living with this pain and then sailing off into the, um, uh, shit. <laughs> The land, the elf, what are they called? In, into the West, we'll just say. Vaguely. Into the West, right. To, to Valinor or whatever it's called. Yeah. Yes, it's into the West. And that how that is bittersweet. There is a uh, there's sweetness in that they win, but at the same time that Frodo was changed forever and goes off um, um, to to not be with his friends anymore. Although his friends eventually, most of them end up joining him if, if you read the appendices, the appendices from, from Return of the King. Um so that's kind of my take is is that that would be a nice or a good not a nice but a good bittersweet turn on Martin's part for uh, for Arya to die but not really die that her spirit will live on in Nymeria and I think that's also a point that's brought up in this chapter about how Arya has an instant strong connection with her direwolf in Nymeria and uh, it, it grows as as it goes on and and the the bad or the good thing depending on how you see it is that you know it's only a few chapters after this I think ten or eleven until Arya and Nymeria are separated physically. Um, but they, they maintain that connection for the, for the rest of the, the series. I, I just, I think it, I just, again, I just think it's a good bittersweet touch on Martin's part for Arya to die. I do think that there's going to be a lot of major point of view character deaths 
in at the end of a dream by the end of a dream of spring. Um, I'm not sure that Arya is going to be one of those that survives, though. I think that's perfectly fair point, sir. I totally agree that if she does die, I think she'll pass on into Nymeria. That's been set up pretty strongly with not only the, her working connection, but as you mentioned, all the stuff in Berenger Sixkin's prologue. So, yeah, well, I, I, I certainly don't want to see Arya Stark on the death list. I agree that the, the setup certainly is strong enough for it, that it could it could feel bittersweet and cathartic and well done if he executes it right. So he, yeah. Yeah, he just... <laughs> He has to execute it uh, well, and, and and I do trust Martin to to do a good job on it. Um, I, I am curious though whether, so I, I am curious about whether the show is going to give us a, a version of Arya's endpoint. You know, as we're recording this, we're recording this in March two thousand eighteen. Are we going to see what's going to happen to Arya Stark come a year from now when when Game of Thrones season eight comes out? Is is that going to be is that going to be Martin's endpoint for Arya as well? Who knows? I mean, it's a difficult question compounded by the fact that Arya, maybe more than any other character, was altered by the dropping of the five-year gap. As you said about the Mercy chapter, some elements, especially regarding her sexuality and maturity, are still clearly present, even though she didn't age up. So I do wonder whether that affected the end game at all, in terms of his, his designs for Arya, and whether that has had any ripple effects on how the show handles her. So I'm going to be very curious to see... Obviously, how the show handles all the characters for Endgame, but in particular, those characters, Arya, Bran, and Sansa, who were so affected by the dropping of the five-year gap. Yeah. We won't, know sure for, we won't know for sure unless we have wins by then, which would be great, but unlikely. We won't know for sure whether that matches up with what's going to happen in the books, but it will provide us interesting clues for sure. I think I think that's, that is a good way of, of putting it, and I do think that... <sighs> So one of the things that that's, they've they've talked about that David Benioff and Dan Weiss, who are the showrunners for Game of Thrones, have talked about is that George R. Martin revealed the end states for all of the major characters and kind of what happens at the end of the story. Um, and and I would think Martin, being kind of the writer that he is, he would have a lot of these endpoints already envisioned as he's even writing the first couple chapters in a, in a Game of Thrones. So this chapter, this the, that that line of of finding Arya still clutching needle when the when the snows melt, I. I do think that is telling for what the end point for Arya might be, but I, I am more than open to Arya having a redemption arc and going in with the Starks and, and fighting to the bitter end against the others in some fashion or capacity. And But I, I can also see it working well that, that her dying and coming back as Nymeria uh, in some capacity would be a, a fitting conclusion to her arc as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, it can be both. She can go home and have the restorative return to Arya Stark and also die in defense of her family and live on her wolf. I think there's a, there is a way to make all that work. Um, I, I think it could if, if he executes, executes it poorly, I think it could potentially clash where it would come off like he got Arya home just to rip our hearts out. Right. When you know when he kills her off, it could, it could come off like that. Like I had that with like Stannis on the show. Like in his last season, they started trying to make you like him more after giving you no reason to like this version of Stannis. In the previous few seasons, and it was clearly just so it would hit home harder when he burnt Shireen. So uh, again, generally Martin is better writing than that. That my worry is if he if he does it poorly, it could end up just like as a sucker punch situation where he's just sure. he's just making you feel bad for the sake of feeling bad. But again, the tone of the ending is not grim but bittersweet, like you said. So right. that gives me hope that he's got he's got a very specific tone in mind for how he wants to pull this off, and I think that could be. Very, very, very sad in a good way instead of sad in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Man, we've got to like find some more topics where we actually disagree on or we have to disagree not 
unamicably. Is that a real word? I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll have we'll have an episode where we just fight over Barristan's fate and how you're wrong. About there we that. go. We'll, just, we'll do that. Yeah, come <laughs> come 2024 when we're talking about a dance with dragons, <laughs> we can we can we can definitely do that exactly. So we'll, I, have, we'll have just a, a special episode on the fate of Barristan. So there you that, that might be a special Patreon episode, right? That, that sounds like a good one. Good one to me. Make us do it, guys. Give us money to make us do it. That's right. So I think that about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Aria 1. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to us. We've uh, enjoyed recording this episode and the previous episodes before this one, and we are looking forward to recording more. Come soon. Absolutely. You can follow us on social media at, uh, at Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter. You can reach out to us by email at the same thing, Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. Uh, you can uh, find us on Twitter. I'm at Poor Quentin. And I'm at Brendan Beefish. And uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes and check out our, uh, our this episode and all episodes of our podcast on Podbean and SoundCloud. We'll put the links in, as always. And like Jeff said, we're going to be off for a week because I'm um, doing some traveling. But when we come back, we'll have two episodes for you as a special thanks for waiting. Our special episode on A Storm of Swords versus A Dance with Dragons. And our next chapter in the reread, which is from uh, Brand 2. Brand 2 of Game of Thrones. You know the one, The Things I Do for Love. So thanks everyone for listening. We will see you guys next, or rather in two weeks. Have a good fortnight, everybody. The Not A Cast podcast is written and recorded by Poor Quentin and Brendan B. Fish. The music we heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit. And the closing song is called Alaska Goodbye. Thanks everyone for listening. And we will see you all in two weeks.